Years ago, in a different but similar sermon series, I told you the story of Robert in Arizona, who encourages his friends to call him Fat Bob. Uh, that probably tells you something about his personality. He's jovial, he loves people, he loves life. He has a good job, he's a committed Christian and uh, attends church regularly, attended at the time of the story anyway. But if you really wanted to see what makes Bob tick, you would uh, ask him about his Jeep. He bought a Jeep and fell in love with all things Jeepy. <laughs> he joined a Jeep club. Did you know that there are uh, over 15,000 people around the country who are part of a Jeep club? Um, they blog, they meet, they ride together. When they meet, they talk about um, all things Jeep, the, the glories and ins and outs of four-wheeling. Um, by his own admission, Bob said that uh, every free moment he was thinking about driving or talking to other people about Jeeps. But he attended a Christian conference where he heard a speaker talking about the importance of the church and uh, it was one of those moments, maybe you've had one, where out of a message, or maybe you're reading a book and something just jumps out at you and grabs you and says, pay attention to this. He heard the speaker ask a question. Are you married to the church or are you just dating the church? And that convicted Bob because although he did attend church, it wasn't his highest priority, not by a long shot. If uh, a call went out for volunteers on a Saturday, but he had a Jeep event, he, sorry, but I'm busy that day. If, uh, if there was a meeting of some kind on a Sunday afternoon, he'd be watching the clock during the entire service, just really thinking about what was coming later in the day. And so convicted was he about this that he went home the next day after the conference and went online and resigned his membership in the Jeep Club. He explained why. He said, I'm divorcing the Jeep and marrying the church. Now, I think that Jesus and the apostles who wrote the New Testament would like that story. Not that there's anything wrong with liking Jeeps. Not that if you're going to follow Christ, you can't uh, get involved in recreation or you have to quit your other clubs and give every waking hour 24-7 to your local body. But Jesus and the apostles make it clear in the New Testament that the church is to be a priority for the people of God. Bob grasped this much, that if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be serious about living for God, you have to be committed to the church. And that's my, my message this morning in a nutshell, that every Christian should be committed to the church, and that includes, among other things, joining a local congregation. Every Christian should be committed to the church. And that includes, among other things, joining a local congregation. Would you look with me at Acts chapter 2, Acts, the story of the early church. Our passage is found on page 811 in the Pew Bible that you find in front of you. 
Or if you've got a copy of God's Word that you brought with you, which two thumbs up if that's the case, turn to Acts chapter 2 and look with me for a moment at verse 42. The new Christian movement has just gotten started and what a start. Hundreds of people have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior and we read in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to nurturing this wonderful new Jesus and me relationship. Daily they had private devotions, they logged on to their Bible-themed websites to find personal spiritual growth. What translation is that? My version says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. Notice the word together again and again. With glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When the first Christians became Christians, they committed themselves not only to Christ, but to his church. They got together, they met together, they ate together, they worshiped together, and they began one anothering. I typed that once into a document and uh, my word processor didn't like it. One anothering. What kind of a word is that? Well, that's actually the title and subject of another sermon later in this series. But here's just a foretaste, some of the examples of what the New Testament says Christians do with and for one another. Love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, greet one another. And, you know, you can't do those things all by yourself. And you can't do them not very well, sitting on the sofa watching a screen. We are grateful for modern technology and the way it allows some of our people who could not otherwise stay connected to be connected to some extent, but to be the church, to do the one anothering that we are called upon to do by the head of the church, you have to get together. You have to meet, FaceTime, and not the kind on your phone. You need others to one another. Hebrews 10, familiar words to some of us, um, remind us that we are supposed to not forsake getting together. Evidently, um, it was a temptation even in the first century to skip church, to skip corporate worship. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25 says, let's consider how we may spur one another on. There's that one another again spur one another on to love and good works, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, there's another one another, and all the more so as you see the day approaching, the day of the Lord, the day that the King is coming back, and we will want to be found when he comes doing what he has told us to do. And that includes one anothering. And I suppose some people might say, um, well, I don't for, forsake 
the gathering of God's people together. My bowling buddies and I are all Christians, and we get together every week, and, and we even pray over our pizza afterwards. Or somebody might say, well, I have my fellow Christians in my home on a regular basis. And, well, that's good, but let's, shall we, let the Bible define what it means to come together, to assemble. If you look at the Bible and its description of the church, compare uh, our practice to what the New Testament says the church ought to be, you'll see that the church came together at least weekly for corporate worship and fellowship. The church was led by elders, served by deacons, organized, oh, I know I said a dirty word, organized, at least as organized as it needs to be to accomplish its mission. And if anybody had said in the New Testament times, Jesus, yes, but church, no thank you. The apostles would say, Jesus doesn't give you that option. If anybody had said, I can be a Christian without being part of a church, well, the apostles might have answered with words similar to that of a 19th century preacher who said, I can be a Christian without being part of the church? Are you sure about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to the Lord's commands as you can by being obedient? He said, look, here's a brick. What's it made for? To help build a house. It's no use for that brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground as it would be in a house. It's a good-for-nothing brick. So, you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you're much to blame for the injury you do. If anybody had said, I think that I can grow in Christ and serve God without being in a church, the Apostle Paul would have said in the words of 1 Corinthians 12, just as a body has, though, just as a body, though one, has many parts, all its many parts form one body, and so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. The body's not made up of one part, but of many, so that the eye cannot say to the head, I don't need you, and the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. I think later in this series we'll have a study entitled, or something along these lines, all different but all needed. But that's for another day. For now, it's just enough to note that in God's plan for his people and their growth in Christ-likeness, the church plays a central role. You might uh, agree or disagree, but uh, Mark, a young man in graduate school, uh, was involved in a church. He joined the church, but he had a friend also in graduate school who attended with him but did not join, did not really get committed, and um, in fact, he would on Sunday mornings breeze in halfway through the service just in time for the sermon and then get out as quickly as possible afterwards. And one day, Mark decided to ask him about his half-hearted participation. 
And the guy said, well, I don't really get anything out of the rest of the service. And uh, he appeared genuinely surprised by Mark's question when Mark said, have you ever thought about joining the church? Join the church? I don't know why I would do that. I know what I'm here for, and those people would just slow me down. Now, as far as Mark could tell, he didn't mean that in an antagonistic or demeaning way, but with a genuine zeal for personal evangelism, and he didn't want to waste any time. Um, he had given some thought to what he was looking for in a church, and he had found it here, just a good sermon to kind of charge his spiritual batteries for the week to come. And, um, but Mark was disturbed by those words, those people would just slow me down. And Mark says, there were a number of things I wanted to say, but all I said to him was, did you ever think that if you linked arms with those people, yes, they might slow you down, but you might help to speed them up. Have you thought that it might be part of God's plan for them and for you? If in the first century anybody had said, I love Christ, but I'm not so sure about his church, Paul would have responded with the words of Ephesians 5 or other places that the church is the bride of Christ. When I was a student at Moody in the dining hall, I heard a couple of my fellow students at the next table um, talking the church down, demeaning the church. And you know it's easy to do. Let's face it. The church has a lot of warts. And they were finding fault with the church as only college sophomores can. And a prof also overheard the conversation. And as he left with his tray to go back to the conveyor belt, he stopped at that table and said, you know, I overheard you guys talking about Jesus' bride. I'm not sure he would like that. And then left them to think about that. Th you think about that. Think about that. The church the Bible says, is the bride of Christ. Are you sure you want to say, I love you, Jesus, but I don't care much for your bride? Well, somebody might be thinking, yeah, Ken, but this, this biblical material, this is talking about the church with a capital C, the church universal, the church spread throughout time and space, not the local congregation. But you know, the New Testament doesn't separate the two. The universal church becomes visible in the local body. The local body is the church universal in the flesh. You can check this out for yourself. If you go online and find a concordance, you'll discover that the New Testament uses the word church 112 times and in the vast majority of those, 90 plus, it clearly refers to the local congregation. The church in Corinth, the churches of Galatia, the church that meets in Chloe's house. So when we sing as we did this morning, I love thy church, O God, we're not just talking about the ideal, faceless, timeless movement, but 
I love that brother in the folding chair on the other side of Fellowship Hall. I love the volunteer who may not be perfectly suited to what she's doing, but does it with a willing heart anyway. I love learning from the Bible what I could not learn unless I was in a group. I love my pastors, warts and all. I love the church that meets in Chloe's house. I mean, that meets at 2500 Dowie Memorial Drive, and I'm committed to her. Well, I hope that if you're not already convinced, you will be by the time this series is over, that the church is the bride of Christ, and therefore, when you are united by faith to Christ, you are united to his body, and therefore, every Christian should be committed to the church. In fact, I, I doubt that very many people in the room right now need convincing. Here you are. You could be doing other things on this beautiful fall morning, but you're here, committed at least today to corporate worship and fellowship. You don't need me to give you more arguments why every Christian should be committed to the church, but some might wonder about the second part of my sermon's main idea, that that commitment includes, among other things, joining a local congregation. Why do I have to join? Why this process of filling out a card, meeting with an elder and a pastor, getting my name on a roll? Why can't I just be a committed Christian without all this formal rigmarole? Well, I'd like to give you a biblical and a practical answer to that question, uh, but first note that it is a decidedly modern, Western culture kind of question. <laughs> Most centuries have understood that important relationships are dignified, solidified by process and, and ceremony. Uh, for most of history, you didn't just shack up, you got married. You don't think, oh, I, I want to be a citizen of the United States. You have to go through a process unless you're born a citizen. A young adult named Holly says, most Christians my age know what they believe and think as long as they have that figured out, they don't need a church or the things that go along with it. Besides, it's just a formality. Just a formality, really? Here's why I think that we ought to be committed and that that commitment takes the shape of actually joining a church. Here's the biblical answer. The New Testament church counted and listed people. In Acts chapter 1, we read that the number of believers was about 120. In Acts chapter 2, thanks to the powerful spirit-filled preaching of Peter, about 3,000 more joined their number. And if anybody had said to Peter uh, that week, about how many of you Christians are there anyway, he, he wouldn't have said, oh, I don't know, we don't count, we don't keep formal lists of any kind. I mean, it's not like there's a, you know, an organization with membership or anything like that. No, 
he would have said, oh, at last count, about 3,200. Now, if you did the math on the screen, you realize that I rounded up. That's because I'm a preacher, and preachers round up. You didn't hear that here. They counted. They knew how many people were part of the church. Uh, they counted, um, according to uh, Paul's letter to, the, to Timothy, and I guess I don't have a, a reference for that, but if you're, if you're taking notes, uh, it's 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 11, where we read about a list of widows in the church. Now, if somebody had said, why do we need a list? It just seems so formal. It just seems like a, you know, a formality. Well, the apostles would have said, well, we want to know who we're supposed to take care of. Some widows, their families are taking care of them, but there are some we don't want them to fall through the cracks. We don't want them to be forgotten. I mean, some of them can't get out to our weekly meetings and out of sight, out of mind. No, we, we need a list. And uh, the deacons, they, they, they are the ones who are appointed to head up the church's caring ministry. They, they, they need to know who they're responsible for. And if somebody, an American time traveler, for example, had said, well, I just don't believe in lists of names. I think Paul and Timothy would say, that's weird. That's weird. Not only do deacons need to know who they're responsible for, the elders of the church need to know who they're responsible for. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They watch over you as men who must give an account. Now, this is a text for another Sunday when we talk about the way God's people relate to the leaders of the church. But for now, uh, notice that elders are supposed to lead in such a way that they can responsibly give an account to the head of the church for their leadership. Now, who are they responsible for? Right. The members of the church. And if that doesn't persuade you that the elders need to know who God has made them responsible for, then pay attention to another word in that verse. Obey. And the leaders of your church have said, you need to join. So what are you going to do with that? Another way we know from New Testament texts that um, they counted, they had membership lists of some kind, is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a discussion of church discipline, Paul, the apostle writing to the church in Corinth, makes a distinction between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. And much as uh, we modern Americans may not like that kind of language of insiders and outsiders, the Bible does throughout distinguish between the people of God and those who are not or not yet the people of God, and that includes uh, the church. And so in talking about church discipline, Paul writes, what business, is, what business is it of mine to judge those who are outside the church? God will judge those outside. But as for that grievously sinning 
an unrepentant member of the church, expel the wicked person from among you, he says. Years ago, Dr. J. Adams was uh, fielding questions at a pastor's conference, and somebody said, um, should we discipline Christians who are not members of the church? And he said in his distinctively categorical and provocative manner, of course not. Church discipline is for believers. And a kind of low murmur went throughout the audience because uh, it sounded like he was saying if you're not a member of the church, you're not a believer. And so um, somebody asked a follow-up question, and he explained, people who are not members of a church should be treated as unbelievers because they are treating themselves as unbelievers. And now an even bigger murmur went out because, as Adams knew, there were a lot of people in the audience from a particular denomination that deliberately chose not to have formal membership. But as he expounded on the Bible's teaching that the early church knew who was in and knew who was out, uh, some became convinced and sought him out afterwards and told him that he had, he had persuaded them and that they were going to institute some kind of church membership in their own congregations. Who is responsible for church discipline? Well, in some congregations, it's the membership. In some congregations, it's the elders. And who chooses the elders? Right. The members of the church. Now, here's the practical answer to the question I promised. Why should we care about formal membership? I hope I've given you some evidence from the New Testament itself. Here's a practical um, answer. Many years ago, I was a kind of an interim pastor at a flock in Ocean City, New Jersey. For many years, it had been just a summer preaching point. Ocean City is a barrier island. It's a vacation destination. In the winter, there's hardly anybody there, but um, in the summer, the population swells. And these folks had for, I think for decades, been meeting for 10, 12, 15 weeks during the summer and the collar weeks um, and, and worshiping and fellowshipping. But now, enough of them had moved year-round to Ocean City, retirees and so forth, that they thought we could make a year a year-round church out of this. Let's, let's organize a church um, year-round. And they wanted to know if I would be their pastor, their first year-round, first-time pastor, full-time pastor. So I asked the trustees of the uh, organization, um, if we proceed with this, this conversation, um, who will decide whether to have me as pastor or not? And they said, well, the members. And I knew they didn't have a formal membership role. So I said, who would that be? Crickets. I pressed. Does that mean anybody who happens to show up on a given Sunday? No answer. How do you know who your members are? Somebody better be counting. Somebody better be writing them down. Who owns this place? 
this multi-million dollar piece of real estate and Camp Zion, the members. You know that? Don't spend it all now. It's a practical matter that you, you need to identify who is, in fact, a member of the congregation. And if you don't, it can lead to trouble. So you may not find the sentence, join a local congregation in the Bible. You won't find a sample membership card. But the inference is there that some kind of membership enabled Christians to express and solidify their commitment to one another. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, I well remember how I joined the church after my conversion. I forced my way into it by telling the minister, who was lax and slow, after I had called four or five times and could not get to see him, that I had done my duty, and if he did not see me, I would call a church meeting myself and tell them I believe in Christ and ask them if they would have me. Why so eager? <laughs> Maybe Spurgeon understood the benefits. Maybe he understood his own need for regular fellowship and accountability. Maybe he understood that this is just part of commitment to Christ, that every Christian should be committed to the church, and that includes joining a local congregation. And maybe if Spurgeon could visit 21st century America, he would say to some of us, stop dating the church. Well, please join me in prayer. Father, you spoke through a conference many years ago to Bob in Arizona, a committed Christ follower, but one who, until that sentence jumped out at him, had not been as committed to Christ's body as he should be. And it may be that by your Holy Spirit, you would use my inadequate words, but more importantly, your word, to speak to somebody today. Uh, to speak to all of us, even long-time committed church members can use the reminder of how much value you place on the body of Christ. But in particular, I hope and pray that maybe some who have not made the commitment that you ask them to make would do so. And today and in the weeks to come, help us all to rediscover church. For the sake of Jesus, the head of the church, in whose name we pray.